0: Well, good morning. morning. It's a particular pleasure to be with you here at Wayside. Uh, Just to be with you, that's one thing, but there are a couple of reasons that are particularly uh, special to me and to my wife, Gail, who's here with me. Uh, One is we now live in Fredericksburg, Texas, and we go to Hill Country Evangelical Free Church, which was started through Wayside. And so thank you for that. The second thing is uh, a long and very wonderful friendship with Roger and Kim, and so it's a special privilege to be here. Roger, thank you for your invitation and for this uh, special opportunity to be with you all. I listened to Mark Bailey's sermon from last Sunday. He was talking about uh, living and serving and ministering in a contrary culture. And as you heard, much of my background has been in leadership, so I want to talk with you about leading Christian leadership in the midst of a contrary culture, because God has put you at Wayside Chapel here in San Antonio at this place at this time to use you for his purposes and to accomplish his will in this community and to minister to the people that uh, he has placed you within. Nowadays, it may not be such an easy thing. The church in the U.S. has enjoyed years of uh, favorable culture, but that's not so much the case anymore. That's changing daily. And the reality is we will either influence the culture in which we live or that culture will control us. Now, the culture in the United States is changing at warp speed. Many of the current cultural norms, uh, you know, I think if I try to do this and give you my very unscientific analysis, the cultural norms that uh, we're in now can be traced back to the 1960s when free love became a rallying cry for a younger generation that was in rebellion against the moral restraints of that day. It wasn't long till that rallying cry was generalized to include all, life, all parts of life. And the slogan, if it feels good, do it. That justifies it. And the moral contamination seeped into business, into politics, into even ministry. It's been there all while. But it just really began to bloom and to blossom. And right now you can get a clear moral temperature of the country Kind of forced on you when you go to the grocery store. As you stand there in the checkout aisle waiting for your turn to go through the register and buy your goods, in our celebrity saturated culture, you can find out very easily who's cheating on who was it Blake or Miranda? Who's having whose baby? Who's been picked up for DUI? Who's now in rehab? oh my gosh, who has too much cellulite? <laughs> the problem is that a godless culture and personal self-interest are allies. Godless culture knows what is appealing to our self-interest and our fallen nature. And that godless culture is very adept at creatively serving up to us all of what it wants us to have and to do... In a form that's very hard to review. And so now, we live in a culture where the greatest value is my own pleasure, and the greatest virtue is self centeredness, the greatest sin is not loving myself, and the greatest tragedy is having unfulfilled desires. And the reality is now we are in a case where the desires themselves validate our choices. That's the reality. Uh, when we lived in Dallas, I had about a 30 to 45 minute commute back and forth to the seminary. And I listened to the radio and, as I was doing this. And, of course, radio is so much commercials. And I w- it just got stopped once when I was thinking. I heard this commercial and it was... You deserve this. You deserve Have you ever thought how many times you hear that on commercials? You deserve The first one I remember was McDonald's. You deserve a break today. But now it's gone through everything. You deserve this. You deserve that. The reason why you should have this is that you deserve it. And so in the rush to do away with the earlier moral restraints, the source of much of the earlier views of morality had to be challenged. And so Christianity began to be mocked and disparaged. I always remember my wife's story about when she was a student at the University of Texas in English. She had an English professor, a young man with a PhD from some Ivy League school, in a class on American literature where they were studying Puritan writers like Jonathan Edwards and Cotton Mather. And one day at the end of his class, he said to all of these students there, I trust that none of you still believe in the myth of Christianity. That was a few years ago. It's gotten even worse. The reality is that God is being pushed out of American society. Sometimes by omission or the glorification of life without God. You see that in the entertainment industry. There's also been a literary slide in our culture. Do you know the two most popular books in the 19th century were Lou Wallace's Ben-Hur, that was published in 1880, and Charles Sheldon's book, In His Steps, that was published in 1896. Now, Lou Wallace, who wrote Ben-Hur, was a Union general during the Civil War, and uh, he wrote that book, and it became a hugely popular book, made into a movie. The star was Charlton Heston. I wonder if any of you have seen that. but it was a story about a charioteer who was fighting for his family and his inspiration was jesus christ sheldon's book in his steps was the first book to ask the question what would jesus do And it was published in 1896. It sold 50 million copies. And it was the leading bestseller all the way up until the late 1950s. Until it was replaced by, of all things, Peyton Place. That's the reality of the change. So sometimes it's glorification of a life from which God is absent. Sometimes it's become the prohibition... Of uh, even the mention of God. Uh, This happened in Houston uh, about four years ago at the Veterans Administration Seminary, where for years the Veterans of Foreign Wars, uh, American Legion Post 586, and the National Memorial Ladies had been voluntarily helping to honor the deceased veterans. Uh, the veterans would fire shots, uh, memorial rifle shots, and then they would take and pick up the cartridge cases after they'd been ejected from the rifle, put them in a small bag and take them to the family and to the the ones who had lost their loved one and say, may God grant you grace, mercy, and peace, and give that to them as a, a memorial. The memorial ladies would write, notes to them and at the end of their notes they would they would say god bless and the administrator of the va cemetery there in houston said you may no longer do this you may no longer say may god grant you grace mercy and peace and the ladies are not allowed to say god bless and furthermore if the family requests prayer that prayer has to be submitted to me before you can do it and it caused a huge uproar And there was a lot of controversy going back and forth and the administrator was moved on to another place and so on and they made some clear rules about it and solved it in that way. Last month, the Oklahoma Supreme Court decreed that a sculpture of the Ten Commandments must be removed from the state capitol grounds. I think there's one over the justice in Washington, D.C. at the Supreme Court I wonder when that will be the target. Now, the reality is, unless God brings another great awakening into America, uh, you will be leading in a society, in the church, in the midst of a culture which is less and less tolerance for Christians because it's threatened by the moral position that Christians proclaim from the Scriptures. I came across a, a new book just published this year. The title of it is... So Many Christians, So Few Lions. It is done by two sociologists, George Yancey and David Williamson, who are professors at the University of North Texas. And they did a quantitative analysis of the 2012 American National Election Survey. And then they followed it up by surveys and interviews with people. And what they found, they really found two things that were very surprising. The first is that religious prejudice in this country today is worse than racial prejudice. And the second thing is that the group that is most disliked by the culture is, guess who? Conservative Christians. It wasn't a majority of the population that disliked conservative Christians, but it was a significant minority. And those who were anti-conservative Christians, the surprising thing was that they tended to be relatively high in social status and social power, wealthy, well-educated, progressive, Caucasian. These are the people that are in power. These are the people that have a a lot of uh, social power. And they have a very strong dislike for evangelical Christians now this would make us stop and think how do we relate to this what do we do now the helpful thing is, we think about Christian leadership in a contrary culture the helpful thing is this isn't the first time that Christians have been in a culture contrary culture uh, in which they've been called to lead really Christians have almost always lived in a contrary culture the fact that we have, for so many years lived in a culture favorable to Christianity is something that is uh, kind of different in the history of the world. So Christians almost always live. So let's look at a passage in Scripture. If you'd open your Bibles to First Peter, chapter five, I want to look at uh, this passage in terms of what Peter is saying about Christian leadership in the midst of a contrary culture. He is writing to believers, they are primarily Gentiles, but there are a few that are Jews by, uh, of the dispersion, and they are scattered throughout the region that is modern-day Turkey. They live in the cities and the villages of that region, and they are immersed in a Gentile unbelieving culture, and that culture is hostile to them. They're experiencing suffering instigated by the cultural majority. Their suffering is mentioned about 20 times leading up to this passage in chapter 5. These believers, many of whom are from that region, are called aliens and strangers. In chapter 2, verse 11. And they're aliens and strangers because they no longer fit into the culture of that area. They are mistreated, in chapter 3, verse 14, because they act righteously. In chapter 3, verse 17, they're mistreated because they do what's right. Now, notice, they're not mistreated because of some edict from Rome calling for the persecution of Christians, but because they are Christians trying to live out their faith in an unchristian society. These who are new believers, generally, have uh, refused to, say, conform to their earlier lusts and their previous Christian ignorance. They said no to the things that the non-culture, non-Christian culture values. Therefore, the Christ, the culture, the non-Christian culture hates them. In chapter 1, verse 6, it distresses them by putting them through trials. In chapter 2, verse 12, it slanders them. In chapter 2, verse 19, it causes them to suffer unjustly for doing what's right. Chapter 3, verse 14, it intimidates them. It maligns them because when they turned to Christ, they gave up. The sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries in chapter 4 and verse 4. You see what happened? They were doing the same things the culture was doing. And when they became Christians, they stopped doing that. And because they stopped doing that, all of a sudden, the culture now in verse 14 of chapter four, it reviles them. In other words, in order to justify their sinfulness, the non-Christian culture has to persecute them. I came across a story just yesterday of a Marine Corps, Lance Corporal. She's from Haiti by descent, but she's in the U.S. Marines. And uh, she, in her office, uh, she noticed that other people in in the office there had put personal things up on the wall. And and she wrote, uh, typed out a Bible verse, a small thing, put it on her computer. Her boss came in and said, take that down. And she said, why? That's... I have a First Amendment right to do that. Take it down. And she said, why should I take it down? He said, because I don't like the tone. The next morning when she came to work, she found that it had been pulled off, thrown in the trash. And then she was court-martialed and given a bad conduct discharge. And currently she can't get work because of her bad bad conduct discharge. Fortunately, there are some Christian organizations that are helping her, and hopefully we'll turn that around. But that's kind of the way it is, the way the culture is. And so after talking about all of these things to these believers in these first chapters of 1 Peter, Peter gets personal, and he begins to exhort the leaders of the churches and then the people. And so when we get to chapter 5 in verse 1, for the first time in his whole epistle, he uses the word I. So he's personal. And he gets passionate. Uh, Christians who are suffering pushback of a hostile culture need reliable leaders that they can count on. And so from the 1st century to the 21st century, the stage set and the actors have changed, but the script and the drama is still the same. This is very contemporary. And so, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain. But with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What he's saying, first of all, is that leaders are critical to the growth and the survival of the church. In the midst of a hostile culture. Peter tells the leaders of the churches throughout that region where they're being persecuted, step up and lead. By the time he writes about A.D. 64, the terminology of church leadership has become common. Paul said a similar thing to the elders. Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Peter says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight. Now that term shepherd is used very commonly. Shepherd and oversight, those are the terms that refer to leadership in the church, leadership in the Christian community. Now you may think, shepherd, uh, have you ever seen a shepherd? We don't see many shepherds. I have been involved, as I said, in a ministry in Romania for a number of years. And one day, uh, we were at a remote area, and it was right... There big fields behind us, and a small house, and we were teaching on shepherding. And all of a sudden, there goes a shepherd and a flock of sheep. Yeah, that's the first time I'd ever seen that. But we tend to think... When you use the term shepherd, we tend to think that, well, what, what that really means is... Well, like pastoral care. Oh, it means a whole lot more than that. The first assignment I give to these young men in Romania who are going to be pastors is take every passage in the Bible where the term shepherd is used and let's then take those together and look at what it means in each of those contexts and then come together about what it means to shepherd. And actually, shepherd refers to the whole spectrum of leadership responsibilities. It refers to leading itself. It refers to teaching, guiding, correcting, dis- disciplining, guarding, caring for. It is the common term for all of the aspects of leadership. It's the common term for leadership when it talks about God is a leader, it, he shepherds. Kings, shepherd. Leaders in the church, shepherd. And that's true as for Christians in church. It's also true in your family. It's true in your business. In its view, it's true in the society at large. The church needs leaders who lead, but they also need leaders who lead in the right way. And so the second thing that uh, Peter emphasizes here is that the kind of leaders that are needed are ones who think more of others than they do of themselves. That's chapter 2 and chapter 3. In other words, what he's saying is God is looking for countercultural leaders for his church. You know what the three things the culture wants? Three things an easy life, the love of ease and comfort, a rich life, the love of money and lots of it. And all of the toys that go with it. And a powerful life. Love of power. And what Peter is saying is that God says to you, I want just the opposite from that. And so he describes the kind of leadership that God wants for those in the Christian community and in his church. By three things. Three major statements. The first is... That church leaders, Christian leaders, should lead not under compulsion, but voluntarily. That's verse 2. And there Peter is dealing with the love of ease and comfort. You see, because the animosity of the culture against Christians, some people might be reluctant to become known as a leader in Christian church or in Christian circles or uh, in any way like that. Being recognized as a Christian leader may easily make you more of a target, exposing you to the attacks of the unbelievers around. And so the reality is it would be very tempting to avoid leadership for your own ease and comfort. But Peter says rather you should accept that responsibility willingly. You shouldn't have to be compelled doesn't mean that leading will always be easy. But, you know, the reality is leadership is about, not about your ease and comfort. It's about seeing the will of God worked out in your home, in your business, in your school, in your community, and in your church. So, first, Christian leaders should lead not under compulsion but voluntarily. Secondly, Christian leaders should lead not for personal gain but with eagerness. That's the second part of verse 2. And here Peter deals with the love of money. Now, the reality is, from the beginning, uh, church leaders generally receive some kind of financial compensation because they have to spend all of their time working, doing that, leading the church, and so they were compensated. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, Who shepherds the flock without drinking some of its milk? That's his way of saying that. But money has such a pull that also from the very beginning, there were some church leaders who were tempted to use their positions to enrich themselves. And how detrimental is it to hear in our culture society of a Christian leader? I won't even go there. You've seen it on the news and that unbelieving society loves to play that up. And we hurt ourselves so greatly in that way. And so that's why Paul had to specify that those chosen to be elders would be free from the love of money, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. He said they had to be not fond of sordid gain in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. But, he says, Christian leaders are supposed to serve with an unselfish eagerness. Say we should lead not for what we get for ourselves, but what we give to others. Unfortunately, as I've suggested, pastors not are, are not always the best examples of this. Do you know why most churches, by far, most churches are under 200? Some of the research that was done discovered that in order to grow church beyond 200, you had to add people to the staff. And there were some who did not want to have others there to have the affection of the congregation or to share that with them. And that was sad. Third, Christian leaders should not seek to dominate those that they lead, but to provide good examples for them. That's verse 3. Don't lord it over those under your charge, but prove to be examples to the flock. You know, research has demonstrated there are three reasons why people are motivated to be in leadership. First one is a desire to affiliate, and what that means is they want to be liked by others, they want to be accepted in a group, so they take uh, leadership responsibility. The second is a desire to achieve. That is, they want to accomplish something. They want to accomplish a worthy goal, overcome a challenge, whatever it is. Some people become leaders because of that. But the third thing that comes up is a desire for power. For most people, what research shows is that exercising power is more important than being liked or having a sense of accomplishment. There is an addiction to power. And so the church desperately needs people who will be radically different from them. We need leaders who lead not by intimidation but by inspiration. We need leaders who choose not to control others for their own benefit but to control themselves for the benefit of others. We need leaders who lead not with a legal authority derived from their position, but with a moral authority derived from their life. We need leaders who replace this hierarchical exercise of positional power with a horizontal demonstration of personal example. That's what he's saying here. And here's why it's important. Because... Being self-centered, loving money, domineering, loving power, all of that comes natural. But self-giving, serving, and empowering others requires an example. The greatest example was Jesus Christ. But what he's asking is that those who lead in his church, his community, be the same way. They lead the same way. Not like the world leads. Remember Peter and his disciples, they had a hard time with that. They really could not get their mind around what he was asking. They believed that leadership was about exalting themselves and enriching themselves. and as a matter of fact, their most significant conversation that recurred time and time and time and time again was, what? Which one of us is the greatest? That's why they had such a hard time when Jesus talked about his impending death. Do you remember the first time Jesus said we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there? Remember what Peter did? He took him aside and he rebuked him. You can't talk like that. Cuz leaders they they take the throne and they set up their friends. even as they were leaving the room where they had just had the last supper and Jesus had washed their feet and given them such a beautiful example. Do you remember what they were talking about? Which one of them was the greatest? But now, 30 years later, with all that Peter has experienced, as he writes to these believers that are suffering because of their faith in Christ. He now has a different perspective. And he uses some of the same words that Jesus did on that last night. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge. But be example. And he is, as he is writing these words. His mind flashes back to that night. Before Jesus' death. And what he said, because now that's a reality in Peter's life. And so what he's saying is don't lead like the culture does. Rather, give them an example they can emulate. Now, to be a good example, there are at least three things that we need to be a good example. First of all, if you're going to be a good example, people have to have the opportunity to observe you in a variety of settings. I've got a couple of Roger stories I'd love to tell you. One of my favorite was when he was the pastor of the church in Kaufman Texas just south of Dallas. And the church was a small church but it was growing and they needed more parking and so they had to extend the parking lot and so they were cutting down mesquite trees maybe he's told you this kind of making fun of himself cutting down a bunch of mesquite trees and so there with chainsaws all, you know the men of the church got together that Saturday and it's going on and Roger's there with his safety glasses and his chainsaws cutting down mesquite trees and all of a sudden he realizes there's nobody around him and he turns around and all the men are standing over there kind of looking at him and, and he walks over to him and says what, what, what? And they said, we've never seen a pastor work before. <laughs> now that's funny. But there was, was an example. Of service. And not being elevated or different. Uh, and it was an important thing. One of the books that... Uh, Actually, a couple of them that really influenced me. Max Dupree wrote a book, Leadership is an Art. Really excellent book. He's Christian business and CEO of a major corporation. He wrote that book and another one, Leadership Jazz. And uh, the thing that really struck me is as the CEO of this uh, major corporation, uh, he made it a point to be showing hospitality to the people that worked with him. To be at their celebrations, to be at their retirements, to be, have them together at holidays. So all the different ways that uh, he could interact with them and they could see him in many different uh, situations. So you need to have the opportunity of being observed, your conduct observed in a lot of different type of situations. Secondly, there needs to be a consistent correspondence between our behavior and the standards of Scripture. Those, those have to be together. And it hurts the, the cause of Christ every time we see a Christian, whether it's in business or ministry, a Christian fall morally, a Christian have difficulty morally. It's always something that is made a big deal among the believing world. Correspondence between our behavior and the standards of Scripture. Do you know that Max Dupree capped his salary at 20 times that of the average hourly worker? So his, he, he's CEO of this major corporation. He capped his salary at $400,000 a year. Now that may sound like a lot, but when you compare it to other CEOs of major corporations, it's nothing. He did that because of his principles, his Christian principles. And so there was a correspondence between the way he be- behaved and treated those who worked with him and his Christian values. The third thing is we need an exposure to our inner states. In other, in other words, what we're thinking and dealing with, why we make the choices that we do. This requires a level of authenticity and vulnerability. Vulnerability. I wish it didn't take me so long to learn that, but I remember at one time I was uh on active duty in the Army while I was pastor of grace, I was in the reserves, and so I was on active duty at fort hood and so I was driving back from Fort Hood, going back to college station after active duty was over, and you know it was just a lovely little Texas road, you know one of those two lane highways with you know either side you had plenty of room on the shoulders there and I'm driving along and people come up behind me and I'd see them coming up so I'd pull over the shoulder and they'd pass by I'd look over there when they passed by and they'd wave and so I'm doing this two or three times you know and I'm just cool having a nice little drive back and all of a sudden I see this car coming up pretty fast behind me and it's kind of a sporty car I pull over in the side and boom, it goes right by me. And I looked over there and it was a young woman, probably an A&M college student or something. And uh, you know, a few more minutes down the road, you know, I pull back up on the road and I'm going down the road and I realize something's wrong. I feel I'm kind of uptight. You know, I said, I'm mad. And I, said, I think, why am I mad? And then Adon- she didn't wave. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it occurred to me that I wasn't just being a good guy going over to the side. It was about me. It was about them knowing that I'm a good guy. And it, it was really all about the idea of, you know, I'm doing something good and you need to, re- you need to recognize it. I just wonder, am I that much of a self-centered hypocrite? But that's sometimes the reality. And there needs to be a level of openness, a level of authenticity and vulnerability among leaders so that people know what they're dealing with and can respect a person who is trying to follow the Lord. So... Why do all of this? Well, why not just lead like the culture and enjoy the benefits? Well, there's an important answer to that question that Peter gives in verse 4. He says that God will reward those Christian leaders who lead unselfishly. When Jesus appears, he will reward those who have led the church well. The reward will be what we've all been looking for in one way or another. It'll be a crown that consists of glory. So to those who would be leaders, the bottom line is this. You have a choice to make. Glory now or glory then. Get it now and lose it then or get it then and keep it forever. That's what he's saying. In the army, we had... Uh, saying that command is granted, but leadership is earned. All of us need to earn leadership by the example that we give. And so just uh, three things in closing. One, step up and lead as a Christian. Whether it's leading in the church, whether it's leading in your uh, business or your work, whether it's leading in your community, wherever you are, whether it's leading in... the Some kind of organization, a Christian school, or step up and lead as a Christian. Don't be afraid, but lead voluntarily. Don't lead for what you can get out of it for yourself, but for what you can give others. And As Peter says, don't try to dominate or control others, but give them an example that they can follow. Secondly, I would say very seriously, pray for the leaders of your church. As the culture continues to change, the pressures on the church are going to continue to grow. And your leaders are going to have to determine how to respond to all kinds of things that are happening. The most recent Supreme Court decision. We're living in a culture where it's not just make a decision and everybody goes on and observes the decision, but there's going to be people trying to force you into one way or another. The mayor of Houston tried to get pastors in Houston to submit their sermons. That's what it's going to be like more and more. And so pray for the leaders of your church. Pray for other Christian leaders that you know because they will be facing these kinds of pressures in growing ways and more hostility. And thirdly, regularly ask yourself the question, what kind of example am I being? What kind of example am I being in my home? What kind of example am I being to my children? What kind of example am I being to my friends? What kind of example am I being to those that I work with? What kind of example am I being here in the church? You know, God has put us in a particular point in time, a particular place in the development of this country and this society. And He's calling on you and me. To be leaders in this society. May God give you the grace and the strength and bless you with His presence as you do that in this community. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your presence with us. How desperately we count upon that. Thank you for your spirit spirit of power that you have given. Lord, we are grateful that you have given us the opportunity to serve you right now in this culture, this day. And so we pray that you would guide us, that you would give us the wisdom, and that you would give us the courage to lead in the midst of this culture. We don't agree with so many of the things that describe the way that it's going. Pray that you might enable us to be examples, the kind of examples that people would want to emulate, people would want to follow as we follow you. And so we thank you, Lord, for your presence, your continuing presence and power. In Jesus' name, amen.